Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. On today's podcast, authors Joshua Brandon and Will Anderson join me to talk about their new books. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I'm hoping they are using an attractive font on Big Squid. Thank you for joining me today for these two interviews. First, we have Joshua Brandon, who is a writer, director, living in Hollywood. He's living the dream, as far as I'm concerned. He's producing TV and movies. But today, he joins me to not only discuss his career, but also his brand new book, Boldly Go, which he has co-written with William Shatner. Yes, Captain Kirk himself. And this is a fascinating interview. And Josh is a great guest and really share some interesting insight into the actor who is, you know, spans generations of of lovers of entertainment. So that's up first, and then an interview I conducted with Will Anderson for another podcast, and uh, Will asked me to record this as a favour, and I figured, well, since it's on a different podcast, it's on a different feed, you may have missed it, so I thought I'll drop that in at the end, And as always, Will and I have very honest discussions. If you've heard us on uh, TOEFOP, or as it's called, FOFOP, or my episodes, which are called HAMOFOPs, you know that we often have quite honest discussions about things, and we do this with his new book. I am not fine, thanks. And also, through the process of doing this interview, I learned something about where my head is at, uh, which is a really nice thing to realise. So keep an ear out for that. A little bit of positivity for the end of the year is something that I think never goes astray. Uh, before we get into uh, bringing everyone on to the podcast, uh, as you know, everyone who signs up for the Big Squid Patreon has an episode dedicated to them. And today's shout out goes to Adam Southam. Hi, Adam. I hope you enjoy these two interviews, and I think you're going to get a real kick out of what we learn about uh, a certain person's trip into space. Uh, I won't, uh, you know, get ahead of myself, but 
you, you'll know what I'm talking about. You probably already know what I'm talking about just by this little hint, but it is fascinating and I think you'll get a real kick out of it as well. But Adam, thanks for being a Patreon subscriber and I hope you have a fantastic festive season. If you'd like to join the Big Squid Patreon and have access to bonus podcasts, ad-free podcasts, scripts, and super discounts to live events, head to patreon.com forward slash justinhamilton underscore big squid and you will find a tier that suits you. I think there's a new bonus podcast going up today, actually. Uh, A very interesting interview with one of my regulars from my old feed, can you take this photo, please? That was my first podcast, and uh, I found a whole lot of the old episodes on a hard drive, and so I'm going to be releasing some of them on the Patreon. And uh, this is one with Ben Elwood from nine years ago, and you will probably get a kick out of how much we've changed, how little we've changed, and... Uh, everything in between. But anyway, that's going up uh, later today. So uh, keep an ear out for that. And also, uh, speaking of discounts, if you're in Adelaide for the 2023 Fringe, I'm returning for the first time since 2020 and um, bringing my new stand-up show, Little Victories. And it's a show that I've already performed as one-offs in Sydney and Melbourne. And I'm bringing it home to the Rhino Room. It's going to be five shows only. So if you're keen to come along, don't think about it because it'll probably come and go before you realize it and uh, to get as many people there as possible would be fantastic it's a really fun show uh, I think it's probably um, I don't know it's, it's definitely the most I've enjoyed stand-up in probably 10 years so I can't wait to get back home I can't wait to get back to the Rhino room and perform and As I was about to say, all of my uh, listeners here at Big Squid, you can use the promo code PODCAST and make sure you get that Big Squid discount on all ticket purchases. So I'd love to see you there. Uh, Feel free to bring some friends. It's probably uh, the most accessible show I've written in a while. But yeah, look, to be honest, it's just fun. It's a really fun show and I'm really wrapped with it. I'll be back with more information at the end of the podcast for what you can expect from our final week, which is next week. And uh, yeah, it's that time of the year where it's time to have a break. But uh, I'll tell you more about that at the end. But for now, let's bring in Josh to talk about his new book. We have uh, Joshua Brandon joining uh, the podcast uh, for today. And look, we, we're going to talk about your new book with William Shatner. But your story before that is it's really fascinating because you're a Sydney lad who, uh, from what I've been reading, moved to Hollywood around the age of 23, 24. Is that correct? Yep. 24, you got it. Yeah, and uh, you moved over there to uh, break into Hollywood. And, uh, well, where did you uh, get the energy for that? Like, where was the uh, – because it's, it's such a big thing, you know. It's not like going to a smaller town. It's such a behemoth of a machine. So where did the inspiration for that come from? Well, I'd always wanted to be a TV writer or a film writer or something like that. Yeah. I remember as early as, as, like, five or six, I'd see a TV show and I would want to be whoever – whichever character I admired. And my mother's got old photos of, of me in all of these different outfits. There's one of me as Indiana Jones. Yeah. There's one of me as James Bond. And I think there's one of me as Captain Kirk as well. <laughs> and after a while, I realized, oh, I don't want to do any of those things. I just want to tell stories. And so that 
led me to gravitate towards writing and, and being creative. And my cousin Stephen and I operated a theatre company here in Australia. But that's really as far as you could go. I mean, there was a small TV industry, but when I was a kid, Burke's Backyard was the number one show on TV. So I always figured if if uh, if I was ever going to make it, I'd have to give it a shot. And we both moved out to Hollywood in 2008 and just uh, ground away until we got jobs as personal assistants or production assistants and then sort of tried to parlay that into into more work and and then kind of just went from there. I love that so much. It's really hard to be creative writing for something like Better Homes and Gardens, right? It's uh, no no one <laughs> yeah. really gives a shit about uh, character arcs or anything like that. No, I wouldn't think so. Uh, Don Burks had an interesting character arc, and that would be a good story to tell. But that wasn't an option back in 2008 when I left. Well, it might be an option in the future. Just give it a few more Could years. Very well be. Could be the uh, HBO series that we've been waiting to see produced yeah. down here. Uh, <laughs> Nasty Gardener. When you were... Uh, <laughs> and, uh, man, some of the great stories. But anyway, that feels like a completely different podcast that we might have to put behind a <laughs> Patreon wall. But... Um, you, when you were a kid, uh, were you across uh, just kind of sci-fi or, or big blockbuster entertainments or was there other works that inspired you? Yeah, I think my mother is the one who introduced me to Star Trek specifically. So I wasn't a big science fiction person as much as I was just interested in whatever I was interested in. And so various people would come into my life with different different influences. I remember somebody introducing me to The Practice right. when I was a teenager, and so I really liked that. And uh, ER when I was a young kid, and at one point thinking, oh, I'll be a doctor. And um, when I was, I think, 12, I saw Apollo 13, and, oh. and at one point I wanted to be an astronaut. So it was just whatever was introduced to to my creative consciousness that became the thing that I wanted to pursue until I realized no, I don't want to pursue any of those. I just let me let me write stories about other people doing that stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of study with uh, some of those things. Like, uh, I feel like I may have had a a brief moment of watching ER as well, and thinking, how good would it be being, you know, a cool doctor earning very little money as an intern and uh, doing all yeah. of those long hours? And uh, you know what? Uh, maybe I'll just enjoy the TV show and not uh, yeah. <laughs> ruin it with the facts. A lot less blood to deal with that way. Yeah, absolutely. Still some blood, but not not as much. Yeah, it's uh, you know easier to clean up afterwards. I find. But uh, <laughs> yeah. I was um, when I was a kid, I was uh, I feel like the TV series that uh, kind of shifted my consciousness in the way things could work was Mash. Which uh, oh yeah, because you you look back on it and uh, you know how now with uh, with a lot of TV shows and that it's like you got to you got to stick to a formula or this is what it is. And uh, Mash was you know. One night, one of the most hilarious TV shows you've ever seen, and the next night it was deadly serious with no laugh track. And I, I kind of look back on that now and realise uh, how influential that was without noticing it at the time. But you just accepted it as a kid, right? Yeah, MASH was one of my favourite shows, and I do remember when it got serious and they had that that documentary episode and suddenly it wasn't just about laughs anymore. Yeah. And then you started to realise the laughs come from the pain. yes. And that's where a lot of humor comes from. Yeah. So that was an amazing example. And I think because it was on the air for so long, they were given that creative license to to flip the formula from time to time and and just explore what ultimately all good art should be about, which is the human condition. Yeah. And and, and no one blinked. Like I I, I never remember no. anyone watching MASH and like flipping the table and saying, God damn it, it's not in they're not in their Hawaiian shirts gambling. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, the the last episode of MASH is probably the finest piece of television ever produced and there are some laughs in it but mostly it's it's very dramatic it's so funny as soon as you uh, bring that up all i can think about is it's not a chicken it is yeah it's 
indelibly etched into the mind and uh, won't be shaken anytime soon. The other TV show uh, for me as a kid that I had never seen anything like it before was uh, Dennis Potter's The Singing Detective with uh, Michael Gambon. And I'd never seen... Uh, I guess I'd never seen uh, the surreal side of what TV can do. Uh, it's a, uh, once again, it's one of those things that even when I do work now, uh, sometimes I can look at things and I think, oh, that has come straight from that uh, very formative age. Yeah, I agree. For me, the other one probably was Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. Where it was just, that was the first. Now, now we take it for granted that people will do a show about a creepy little town yeah. where nothing is as it seems and it looks beautiful and lush and is really gorgeously filmed and carefully and 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 really um, meticulously structured and plotted. But it all started there yeah. with Twin Peaks in the early 90s and, and it, it basically created an entire genre. And uh, and still, you know, like we recently on this podcast did a rewatch of David Lynch's movies and uh, I, I think with great art, it, it's so exciting, isn't it, when you go back to something that you know really well and you discover new things or you find new perspectives and ways into enjoying it. And I feel like uh, the, the Twin Peaks uh, side of things has uh, continued to repay the faith. Yeah, that's great, and and he really does. He gives you so many layers that you can you can miss things three, four, five times when you see them. And sometimes you can even go back and go, okay, I still don't know what you're doing there, right? And that's fine, right? Because sometimes he he doesn't care if he's the only person who understands. Yeah, it's fascinating to go back and watch uh, Fire Walk with me, and it um, uh, it feels like at the time I and I've said this before, uh, I I didn't enjoy that movie at all. But uh, over time I've gone back and go, oh, this is a masterpiece, and actually kind of ahead of the curve in the way that uh, women are used in uh, in those kinds of stories. And he was actually digging into something that I, th- I think at my age, I just wasn't ready to uh, really be able to understand properly. Yeah, I think I had a similar experience. And it's funny, watching Twin Peaks The Return, he suckered me in again <laughs> because I thought, oh, okay, he's going to answer all of our questions now. Yeah. And what does he do? He ends the series without answering questions and by establishing even more questions. And I just went, how did I not see that coming? <laughs> you fucking masterpiece, you know? Yeah, I was sitting here by myself watching it. I didn't know anyone else at the time who was watching it. And I remember vividly laughing and pointing at the screen saying, fuck you. <laughs> I laughed as well. I just laughed at myself yeah. and not realizing that he wasn't, that he was going to do something like that. Yeah. And he absolutely did that that scream at the end the whole thing it was brilliant yeah so so frustrating but that's what that's what lynch does to you so and i totally agree and uh, so you're, you're watching all of that stuff as a kid is it and you said that you wanted to write tv but is that where you started writing stuff as a kid or was it short stories or where were you first sort of formulating your ideas I think the first thing I used to do was just recreate things that I'd already seen. So a friend of mine used to we get out the old camcorder and we'd recreate the last episode of The Fugitive. Right. So <laughs> he'd tuck his hand inside his his T-shirt so he could be the one-armed man yeah. and I'd be Richard Kimball. But with only two of us, neither of us could appear uh, on camera with the other. So it was always a lot of, you know, one of them looking at, at, uh, at the camera and then switching to the other person and just like little things like that. Then I used to make little little movies just like home movies and stuff and it would be whatever i was influenced by when i saw the godfather movies as a teenager i went i made a little family business italian mafia type movie that was set in sydney and and made absolutely no sense but it was 
was fun to do. And, you know, if your friends are into it, it, it doesn't cost you anything. Right. Just, just people's time. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I love all of this. Are there, are there any ideas that you look back on now and you think, uh, maybe now with um, all my experience and, uh, you know, my skill set, I could, uh, you know, work it into something? Honestly, I like to think that it was all crap, but doing it back then meant that by the time I actually got to Hollywood, I'd left a lot of the amateur mistakes behind right. and and was a little bit ahead of where I could have been otherwise. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh it's the mistakes that are the building blocks of the career, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and what is it like what do they say failure is success training? I mean, I didn't fail in as much as no one ever saw these things, <laughs> which but is perfect. I definitely knew they weren't great and <laughs> A lot of the basic things that, that you know, because I still read scripts as, as part of my work today. I've got a little production company yeah. and we make low budget films and I read a lot of stuff and I just, I feel, oh, I don't know what I can do for you. If you're already this far along and you don't know some of these basic story principles, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this, right. you know, and I, I feel like. I got those basic mistakes out when I was early and, and learned not to not to come forward with any of that work to show anyone else. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's a good point. You can sometimes uh, uh, announce yourself too early and then there's uh, baggage that comes with anything that you're trying to get across the line. Yeah, I mean, what do they say? It's You only get a one chance to make a first impression yeah. or you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. And the number of times, it's just a basic thing. Oh, could you read this script? Uh, okay, fine. I'll, I'll carve out some time to read it. And then you start reading it and then you get another email like a couple of days later. Oh, no, no, no. Here's a new one. Oh, yeah, Here, right. here I fixed it up. No, no, no. Don't do that. No. Unless it's really ready to be read, yeah. don't send it. Yeah, yeah. That is a, that's a really good point. You've got to live with something for a little bit, come back and uh, have that moment where you gnash your teeth in private and then uh, fix it. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Well, because I think something I learned as a kid is, you know, I wrote my first screenplay at 14 or 15 and it was it was terrible, but I finished it. Yeah. I remember it was 106 pages long or 104 pages long and I you at at that point, that's an incredible task yeah. to complete that number of pages. And so there's a huge temptation to go, well, it's done. Yeah. And then you realize, no, 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 you've got to rewrite it now, and sometimes that means starting from scratch and you know that's a that's a, tif a difficult lesson to learn because you just want to be done with the thing, but you've really only just started. It's the it's the uh, end of the beginning, if you like. Yeah, you've you've now kind of got a framework to uh, take mm -hmm. things in and out, etc. Um, w w when you uh, headed over to Hollywood, what was the first uh, stuff that you were working on? Well, Stephen, my cousin, and I had written a whole bunch of spec scripts. Yep. Which, for for those of you who don't know, that's when you take an existing show and you write an episode trying to show a prospective writer that you understand the characters and how the how the story works. So we had a bunch of those. We had we had a Scrubs, we had a um just trying to think of all of them, a 30 Rock. We were primarily in in looking to get into comedy. Yep. We we did a uh, funnily enough we did a Boston Legal, right. which I actually really really liked and uh, and a couple of things like that. So we had a bunch of those. And then we had also started writing some spec pilots, which is when you're you're writing something completely original and, and again, trying to show the reader that you have those skills, that if they were to hire you, you can create something from scratch. So we, we did a lot of writing in our spare time and then basically trying to network as best we can to get a job as a PA, which was really, really hard. Right. Back then, they had a list of all the shows that were going into production. And you could you could fax the shows if you if you were able to do enough digging and get the phone numbers and the and the fax numbers. And Stephen and I put together a resume for each of us. Uh, he went first because I was still getting my visa sorted, and Stephen had won the green card, so he was oh, very right. very um, yeah very 
raring to go. And basically we faxed or he faxed his resume to a hundred different productions and he only heard back from one. Wow. Who said, Hey, I kind of like the style. And, and I've also later when I was a PA, I would be there when those faxes or emails came in. And if there were already a few of us working on the show, they would go straight in the garbage because we didn't want some interloper coming in. If there was a job, we were going to recommend one of our friends. So Stephen got really lucky, got one job on a pilot. Later, that same producer hired me. Neither of our shows were picked up. But from there, we made other connections, got other jobs with producers and whatnot. And then I guess 18 to 20 months after we'd been in town, we had a manager at that point whom we'd met at a party just by hustling and networking. And he got us a meeting with ABC Family, which is now called Freeform over in the US. And we pitched a pilot and they bought it. And we thought, we've made it. Yeah. We've sold a pilot. Yeah. So we start writing it. And then Hollywood does this. It, it shifts the goalposts on you. So I, I remember distinctly, we were writing it in 2010. And we were told that uh, the network executive, the network president wanted, uh, wanted it to be a single camera comedy. Yep. So no audience, single cam. Wanted to skew really young. And focus on the, uh, there was a teenage girl in it. She was in high school. Focus on the teenage girl, skew young, single cam. So we start writing it. We hand it in. Hey, this is great. You know, we ordered 12 scripts this year. We're only going to make three. So we'll see how yours goes. After that point, the network president leaves. Right. New network president comes in, cleans house. And his new mandate is no single camera comedies. And we want to skew older. So they passed on our script and they said, yeah, it skews a little young. And we don't really want to do any single camera comedies. And they say it with a straight face, like you could possibly have known that. Right. So then we hadn't really made it. And uh, neither of us worked again for a couple of years, just went back to trying to get jobs with producers and, and just do our own thing. And it's a, it's a real whirlwind. Then we worked on a TV series in 2012 called Friend Me for CBS, which was a sitcom in front of an audience starring Christopher Mintz Plass, who most people will know as McLovin. Yeah. And... Uh, Nick Braun, who has found a new life on Succession. Yeah. He's uh, cousin Greg. And we had a lot of fun doing that. Never even made it to air. To air. Right. They filmed eight episodes and it uh, they just decided for whatever reason that they didn't want to air it. And so, again, you, you think you've made it and then you get knocked back a couple of steps and you just have to keep reinventing yourself. But people, you know, w- when you talk about it, they don't quite realise that it's so much hard work and you have to put in uh, all the effort, everything from the writing to the making the calls to doing research to going to parties to being seen, doing all of that. And then you, you also need just that tasty little bit of luck where, as you said, the president who, you know, uh, wants you to make uh, this uh, sitcom sticks around because as soon as they're gone, there, there is often uh, the new person coming in uh, often cleans house because they want to stamp their imprint on it immediately. That's exactly right. And that, I think a, a similar thing happened to Tim Minchin, who was in the middle of a massive multi-million dollar animation project. Right. And a new president at whichever studio it was came in and cancelled the project. And they'd already spent, I don't know, $50 million. <laughs> And he devoted years of his life to it and just went, screw this, I'm out of here. And he left yeah. and back to Australia. Yeah. So it is hard. It's really hard. And you need so much luck to fall your way while you also do all of the things correctly. Put yourself in the right place. Because guess what? If you don't, there's 100,000 other people who will. Yeah. And that's why it's so competitive. What, what do you think is the, the best trait that your cousin and you have in uh, being able to navigate all of this? Well, not to make it too much of a cliche, but persistence. Yeah. 
we just would not stop. And I think that's something we don't write together anymore. He preferred to stay in comedy. I got into drama and sci-fi and both of us are still very, very persistent. He's actually headed to Broadway right now. He's got, he's touring, he's producing a show off Broadway with, uh, with these really funny comedian songwriters. And again, just making calls, making it happen, refusing to take no for an answer. And, and always you've got to, you've got to straddle such a weird line between being persistent and being annoying. Right. And that's tough as well. So you've got to do all of that and hope some of the dice fall your way. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. That's uh, genuinely one of my all-time fears is uh, just that making the one phone call too many or the sending out the one email too many. And the majority of people are actually quite nice. But, uh, you know, because I guess there is a lot of people who, as you said uh, previously, even in your example, oh, here's the new version of the script that you've just started reading. Sure. Or I've got, I've got a guy who... Without fail, once a year, will reach out to me out of the blue, call me, sometimes from a new number because he's changed phones or whatever, and just say, hi, can your agent help me with this thing? And I'll give him the same answer. Well, sorry, my agent's not taking new new clients. But what I haven't had the guts to do is tell him next time, do you realize you only call me when you need something? Right. And you've never offered to do anything for me. Right. And you've never shown any interest in anything other than kind of using me. Yeah. And- you're putting you're putting your foot incorrectly forward. You're you're putting the wrong foot forward. Yeah. And I suspect he's doing it everywhere, and that's probably why nothing's happened for him. It doesn't matter how talented he may or may not be. Yeah. If you come across as a pest, you're just not going to get anywhere because there's someone else who's just as talented as you who's not a pest. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, you know you want to do something for them and not feel uh, put upon. Uh, before we get into the book, I'm curious as uh, what took you off into the more dramatic area of writing. I think. To some degree, I'd always wanted to be more of a one-hour writer. Mm -hmm. But because Stephen was the driving force behind the two of us going to LA and because he brought me in as a writer when he was directing comedy reviews at university, I kind of went, yeah, all right, well, we'll do comedy, sure. And I certainly found it easier to write comedy with a partner. But then when I said, you know, I'd really... I, when I was a kid, it was the dramatic stuff I was going for. I, I love long character arcs and sitting with them and not just, you know, setups and jokes. And he said, well, maybe that's what what you should do because I still want to do this. And so we amicably parted ways. Obviously, we're still related. Yeah. We still hang out all the time. Yeah. And that kind of allowed me to reset. And then it was about a year and a half later that I got a job on Haven yeah. for the Sci-Fi Network, which is actually where I very, very, very briefly for the third time, very, very briefly met William Shatner yeah. and thought that was it. And what a moment in my life that he came into the writer's room, shook all of our hands and said, hi, I'm Bill. <laughs> And yet, here we are with quite a different relationship today. Yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? And so, uh, do you think, um, like you said, that you weren't necessarily a a Star Trek fan, uh, you know, well, a Trekkie, I'm guessing, uh, as a kid, but your mum got you into it. uh, Did that kind of give you a a nice kind of bit of uh, safety in distance? And when you met him, you weren't suddenly overwhelmed with wanting to ask, you know, too many, uh, you know, two nerdy questions that you can bring up in the first uh, conversation? Well, I'd like to think that I've been always pretty cool about that sort of thing because you just know you have to. So, for example, I was playing racquetball because Americans don't play squash. So I was playing racquetball (laughs) at at my local gym early on in in my time in LA. And I look over and there's Quentin Tarantino. Right. And I thought, well, I actually adapted and put on stage a production of Pulp Fiction at uni. And gosh, I would love him to see it because 
that should be a, a Broadway play. It's so funny when you do it in front of people. It's really, really right. that's clever. There's a lot of dark humor. And I thought, well, I, I can't just go and ask him. I wonder if there's a way to establish a relationship of any kind with him. So I walk up to him and I'm, I'm there with my cousin and he's there with his friend. I said, hi, sorry to bother you. And you could see his face go, all right, so I got to deal with another fan. And I said, do you guys want to play doubles? Great. And he was so taken aback that someone was just asking him a completely non-fan related <laughs> question. He's like, I just started learning. I have no idea what I'm doing, but thank you for asking maybe next time or whatnot. Yeah. And um, I ne- un- unfortunately, he hated the sport and gave it up. Right. So we didn't see much at the gym. But so, yeah, I, I and I had actually run into to William Shatner on two separate occasions just for a few minutes. I had been asked to help volunteer at a charity event that he did. And he came and introduced himself to all the volunteers. And then a dear friend of mine, Jonathan Sadowski, played his son on another CBS sitcom that also only lasted one season, but actually was on the air called Shit My Dad Says. Oh, yeah, right. And- Jonathan brought us to a taping and brought us backstage and my mother was in town at the time. And that was really an an incredible moment for me because my mother is from Montreal, which is where Shatner is from. She went to McGill, which is where he went 20 years before she did. So for me to be able to introduce my Montreal mother who introduced me to Star Trek, for me to be able to introduce her to William Shatner, that really made me feel like if I do nothing else in this life, that is enough that that really makes this move to LA worthwhile so by the time I I met him in the in the writer's room at Haven it was just another one of those wow I got to meet William Shatner here he is yeah now he's 83 wow that was it was eight years ago yeah wow that's uh that's crazy it's funny the um uh Shatner you know people talk about Star Trek but for for me when I kind of think about Shatner you it's the first thing that comes to mind is TJ Hooker because it was sure because around the age you know when that was on all the time with Heather Locklear and Adrian Zmed like that was mm-hmm. the 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 show that I was seeing him on regularly and that, I think that ran for like five seasons or something it like did, that. yeah it ran for five years yeah and it was great yeah, it was a big hit at the time yeah and he was fantastic and then he's a uh, people kind of forget you know there's there's all these different uh, stages of his career when you started working with him uh, on this memoir what was the uh, era that was the most fascinating or the the one that you learned the most from honestly the the focus of this book we didn't want it to be just a pure memoir because he has written a few of those right. so we really attacked it by looking at themes yep. and so it's almost like a collection of essays one of them is about family one of them is about animals one of them is about obviously space travel another one is about music and from there we were able to pull in stories and intrigue from his entire life. And some of the stories had sort of been heard before, but we were always looking for a different way into those stories as they reflected these themes and, and sort of his philosophy and zest for life. So that's kind of how we attacked it. It wasn't it wasn't specifically like, okay, let's start. You're, you're a young boy. You're right. being bullied at school for being Jewish. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was, let's talk about family. Right. And then he, he gets into it from the most elemental levels. He's, re- he's been reading all of these books about trees and how trees have an electrochemical network where the mother tree sends signals down through the root system to other to other trees. And he said, isn't that what we do with our own families? And we started branching out, if you'll forgive the expression, from there. <laughs> yeah. And seeing how that applies to his life. And 
what are his three daughters up to and what's his relationship with his grandkids and all that sort of stuff. And, and it was, it was super interesting to then mold that into some sort of narrative in, in each chapter. Yeah. So when, when he'd be uh, talking about stuff, I'm, I'm really curious about the, uh, the dynamic. Would you, would he come in with an idea of uh, uh, the thing that he wanted to discuss or would you just kind of talk and then you would sort of discover, Oh, well, these kind of stories are creating a theme and reverse engineering near it a little bit or was it a bit of both it was a bit of both in our initial couple of meetings and this was before the vaccines were out so we were still doing all of this by zoom which actually worked out really well because we were just able to record it have it transcribed none of us had to leave the house or anything it started with us saying okay well what's important to you what do you want people to know about you about your feelings on on life on philosophy and we were just allow things to take shape from there. I remember at one point he said, I've been reading a lot about the brain and it's so interesting. And, and let's do a chapter on the brain. Of course, we never did a chapter on the brain specifically, but we found ways of getting into those elements through some of these other themes. Wow. And then at one point it was just, I had pretty much everything I needed from those first couple of meetings about areas of interest. And then we would just start a Zoom call and he'd say, okay, what are we talking about today? And I'd say, I mean, he he his mind is, is a million miles a minute. I, I would I remember when we started the music conversation because it was going to be a two-hour call because in the second hour, we were interviewing Ben Folds, so we had him scheduled. And I said, okay, well, we've got two hours. In the first hour, we're going to talk about music. And in the second hour, and then I couldn't finish the sentence. He just had already already accessing parts of his brain and memory. Well, when I was young, there was no music in my house. We may have had a record player, but I don't remember. My father worked in the garment district and he worked five days a week and he worked a half day on Saturday and he would come home very, very tired and he would sit on the couch and he would turn on our little radio to the New York Metropolitan Opera Station and he would sit and close his eyes and listen to the opera and I would sit at his feet on the floor while he sat on the couch, gazing up at him and listening to this most pure sound, these beautiful voices and that's all I knew about music and I had to know more, you know, and and he just goes and it's really amazing to watch his mind work frankly wow that's you also makes it easy right like there's you know we've all done those interviews where you ask a question and then you get the yeah nah it was good kind of response and you're like okay we're going to get through this very quickly because i'm running out of angles so having someone who is uh, delightfully uh, uh, articulate like that uh, must be a real treat uh, when when you started working on this uh, whereabouts was his trip to uh, space was this after he'd uh, had that trip or was it uh, around did you start before and then after that's such a great question because the beauty of this is that that was not on the radar at all. Oh, right. We later found out they had approached him pre-COVID about doing it. And then for whatever reason, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. And then when Bezos did do the first flight, I didn't know any of this, but he was on the short list to go up. And then Bezos gave the, the other ticket to his brother or whatever. So <laughs> even as far as Bill knew, that was never going to happen. Sorry, that's such a so weird we had sentence. Already, <laughs> yeah, yeah, gave nah. the ticket to space to his yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So sorry. Uh, he, whatever limited knowledge that Bill had about it was that it was an idea that was discussed that wasn't going to happen. And I didn't even know that much. So we were writing this book and I had no knowledge of that whatsoever. And then I, I remember one day I got an email from his assistant saying, hi, um, I know we've got a call scheduled on whatever date, but Bill's going to be going to Texas to do the pre-op or the pre-launch or something like that. And then he'll be in space. And I went, what? What? He's going to space. And I, 
I just could not believe that. And Justin, as a kid who wanted to be an astronaut, who found out that they would never take me because I'm prone to motion sickness, right. I'm colorblind, and I can't do maths, which would have been required for all that heavy physics. I felt like I went up to space that day. Oh, man. And even though I didn't go, I promise you, that was the day we sent the proposal to book publishers. Oh, fantastic. Wow. What a, like, that's a, that's a one-off sentence that said you, to you, right? Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. He's, he's off to yeah, space. he's going to space. And uh, what was it like uh, talking to him beforehand and then talking afterwards? And the reason I ask is I remember seeing the footage of when he came back and uh, like, like many people who have had that opportunity, he, he seemed to be having a profound experience or having a profound moment, even when people were trying to uh, talk about it with him. Yeah, it was night and day. I remember he got together with his lyricist because he had just brought out a, uh, an album, a really fun album called Bill. Yeah. And they had a few songs left over and they were talking about doing a second album. And then when he found out he was going to go up in Blue Origin, he called Rob Chernow, who's his uh, lyricist and, and a really lovely guy and an amazing poet. And he said, well, Rob, we've got to gotta do something about me going to space. And then the, he had dinner with Rob and Dan Miller, who's a, a musician, and they said, all right, well, let's let's work on some themes, you know, the the awe, the majesty of it, what it's going to be like, completing my destiny, if you like. And when he came back, he he after he sort of came out of this cocoon of sadness, which hung around for a couple of weeks, he called Rob and he said, everything I thought was wrong. We have to start again. There's nothing up there. It's just death. Oh. And he had what some astronauts refer to as the overview effect, which is he went up there, he saw nothingness just utter blackness and and because of the time of day they went i know this sounds silly because space is space but uh the distance they went above the the carmen line or whatever meant that because they went during the day when the sun was at a certain angle they couldn't really see any stars anyway oh, right. so he just saw this all enveloping black nothingness and when you see that and then you turn the other way and you see this blue marble and every piece of life that exists or has ever existed is on that tiny little thing, it completely changes your perspective. And a lot of astronauts have been known to come back and say, why are there wars? Why do we fight with each other? Why do we argue? Why are we destroying this planet? And that's what happened to Bill. Wow. That is, wow. That is really fascinating. The, uh, it, it's, it, there's, Quite a bit of um, uh, amongst astronauts, there's a, a deceptive amount of astronauts who have a heavy faith as well, isn't there? And that's and that I think from what I've read, that kind of also ties into the uh, sense of everything just being a lot bigger than you could have ever comprehended before. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, there's a great bit on that in, in Carl Sagan's Contact. Yeah about whether or not an atheist is the right person to go into outer space or, you know, in that case, go in, in the portal or whatever that leads to outer space. And it's interesting because Shatner considers himself a very spiritual person and he's culturally Jewish. He'll celebrate the holidays and, he you know, family is very important to him, but he doesn't believe in a deity. And that kind of, I think, reinforced that feeling that, no, there's there's nothing out there for us. It's all down here and we, we have to do a better job of being stewards of of the planet and of ourselves. And and when he's talking to you about uh, what he's just experienced and how he's feeling and how it's shifted the way he's looking at things, what does that do to you? How has that affected where you're at? Yeah, it's funny because I remember I probably had the reaction 
when he was going that he thought he would have, that this is going to be incredible. I I feel sometimes ashamed because I imagine I would have been one of the people who was doing cartwheels and then drinking champagne when I got back, only to realize I'd missed the entire point. So right. hearing what he had to say really opened my mind up to much, much more than the superficial elements of that, that trip. So that was eye-opening for me. And just he's so articulate, too, the way he he can speak about it. And he really made me feel everything that he felt. There was a, a real urgency of the message that he came back with. And he's a very urgent person generally, if I can use that term, because he's 91. Yeah. I heard him interviewed on a podcast he did yesterday for a, uh, for the Star Trek fans out there. It's called Enterprise Incidents, and it's really great. I recommend you listen to it. I think they were talking about the second last episode of the show, All Our Yesterdays, and they got Bill on. And he said he thinks about death all the time right. because he might keel over in the middle of one of these sentences. And to go to space, at he was 90 at the time, he's 91 now, and to have that experience and come back, he said, we've got to do more. I've got to do more while I'm here. And, and he wound up with his, with his collaborators, collaborators. They wrote a beautiful, urgent piece of music called So Fragile, So Blue. And they performed it with some other songs at the Kennedy Center with Ben Folds yeah. doing the the uh, orchestration for the National Symphony. And it was incredible. And they filmed it. So hopefully we're going to see it on TV soon. And he hopes in his wildest dreams or fantasies, he said, maybe just maybe he has a little bit of an impact on people. And, and we try to remember that perspective of everything we know is here. Let's do a better job with it. Wow. Does uh, hearing that story and hearing his experience, is there a part of you that's wrapped that you're colorblind and uh, <laughs> not good at maths and <laughs> didn't have that journey? <laughs> Honestly, I, I still feel that if they made it available, I would want to go. Yeah. But I would barf the whole way up and down. Yeah. I just know it. There's not enough Dramamine on this planet to stop me. <laughs> I went, I went uh, with my wife is a big Disney person, and we went to Epcot Center in Orlando where they have, I think it's called Mission Space. Yeah. It's this, uh, and it's Gary Sinise from, you know, the Apollo 13 days as your NASA commander and whatever. And you go in this simulated launch. And there's two versions of it. There's the one that just sort of tips back and forth. And there's the other one that goes up to, I want to say, like two and a half Gs or something like that. And I'd taken two Dramamines. So I thought, <laughs> I'm good to go. Yeah. <laughs> so we go into the one that goes up like two and a half Gs. And within five seconds, my body starts just perspiring like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> and I just gotta go, oh, this is a mistake. And that was really, really tough. And and that was just at the beginning before it even got to to a really difficult point. And of course, they design they design these these uh, rides so that you've got a job. Everyone's got a job. And I was the mission commander or whatever. I was the capsule commander. So when when we get to a certain break point, you have to push that button. And obviously, if I don't push the button, nothing's going to happen. It's just a ride. But not only am I freaking out and trying to not hurl my lunch up, I'm going. I'm I got to stay conscious. And- and push that button. <laughs> and I, 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 so the allure of going there and, and having an experience still exists, but I know it, it, I would not be a good candidate. Yeah. What was it? <laughs> the, the earth is so brown. What did you see? No, no, I was just <laughs> looking down. So, well, you, you, your book sounds fascinating. But before I let you go, since you're a, uh, you work in sci fi and you're a sci fi fan, uh, what, what's been the, the science fiction movies or TV shows in recent times that have uh, really stood out to you? In recent times, the one that I really, really enjoyed was, I'm going to forget the name of it. Um, it's the Tom Cruise one where he keeps respawning. Oh. Uh, uh, something of Tomorrow. Edge, Edge of, tomorrow. of Tomorrow. yeah. 
great sci-fi concept. Yeah. You know, I, ne- I I don't believe. I think there was a book, but I, I don't I don't recall ever reading it as a kid. But that that was really really fun. And to be honest, I haven't really been wowed by anything else recently. I know there's a lot of sci-fi shows that I'm told I should get into yeah. that I never did, and I try to keep up with the new Star Trek stuff. I don't love it, but that's okay because it's it's not necessarily for me. It can be for anyone. Yeah. I do love the animated ones. I think they're great. And the new the new uh, the the Christopher Pike series, Brave uh, Strange New Worlds, I think is actually really good. To me, that's they finally got the formula right, you, and that's a lot of fun. Do you think it's uh, working in sci-fi means you you know like like I don't enjoy stand-up comedy as much as when I was a kid, and it's it's not that there isn't great uh, stand-up, but it's just you know. You just know the tricks a little bit too much, and you just yeah, you're sure. immersed in it a little bit. So, do you think it has that bit of an effect on you? There might be. I, I didn't work on too many sci-fi shows. I did. I did Haven, and then I did Houdini and Doyle, which I would. I don't know if I would. It's more like historical fiction. Yeah. But I had the time of my life on that show because I'm an amateur magician, and so being able to be involved with that show and and teach everybody the the story of Harry Houdini and and all the little details that I knew that they didn't. That was really really great. But I think general in general, you can get a little jaded being in the industry and watching stuff because you go, oh, I know how they did that. Or, oh, that was clearly a recorded line later because they're backwards to the audience. And here's something that they threw right. at the character just to, to bring everyone up to speed. And to be perfectly honest, I've really started to enjoy myself since I got into making independent films. And we only make them for three or four hundred thousand each, but we get a lot more control. And I remember having lunch not that long ago with a, a really successful TV writer and director who a mutual friend had said, hi, I have this friend. She's trying to get her own movie made. She wants to take you to lunch. And I just assumed, oh, okay, someone's trying to break in, wants a little bit of advice. And then when I looked up her resume, she'd been a showrunner. She'd worked on a couple of really, really big shows. She'd run two or three of them. She had directed a bunch of big TV series. And and I told her when we sat down to lunch, I said, it's really depressing that you're asking me to lunch. I should be asking you to lunch. Yeah. But the truth is the TV industry has changed so much that a lot of people have have lost their passion for it, which is fine. Someone will come along and replace us. But she had done a series for Netflix and they did eight episodes and she said it was a really soul-crushing experience. I said, why is that? She said, everything is algorithm-based. Oh, yeah. We would get calls from the executive saying, you need to move this, this sequence from page 30 to page 8. She would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And they said, well, do it as a flash forward or something like that. Okay, but why am I moving that that scene from page 30 to page 8? Well, our algorithm says that we need to have an action sequence in the first 10 minutes or people might switch right. to something else. And at that point, what are we doing, you know? Yeah, man, you know, it's uh, – I, I won't mention the show because I don't know what your connections are and I don't want to put you in a, an awkward position, but there was a show on Amazon and I hadn't really heard about this AI algorithm where they would help write the scripts before. And this show, I kept watching it. I, I can't tell you that I liked it, but I thought it was insane. Like everything that was happening in it, it was like – you like Yellowstone? Here's a bit of Yellowstone. Did you like the girl right. from the OC? Here's the girl from the OC. Do you like singing? Oh, this guy sings. And uh, every every episode got more and more bonkers. And it wasn't until someone had uh, told me about that, that suddenly in hindsight, I was like, oh, you've just explained that whole TV experience that I've had. And it's so, so unfortunate because... Uh, sure, if you follow the numbers, perhaps an audience does prefer to see an action scene in the first 10 minutes. But then you get into this stage where you're not really telling human stories. 
you're just projecting at people what you think they want. And the truth is we don't know what we want until we see right. it. Right. So I remember hearing that if you go to any action blockbuster, you will see an action scene usually at least every seven minutes. Right. Something will happen. Yep. And I remember being in a in a movie going, oh, it's been about seven minutes. Well, oh, 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 car chase. Yeah. And yeah, I guess that's easily digestible. But the shows that really challenge you are the ones that don't do that. And sometimes we'll fail. And that's okay. But I guess, you know, these studios with their millions and millions of dollars, they don't they don't see failure as an option, but they will fail and somebody will be out of a job and then the network executive will move and the new one will come in and say, we're doing something different. And that's just kind of how it goes, sadly. Well, that, that, I think that was, uh, you know, what you're describing is why something like uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once was such a delight, which I went into only knowing the title and brief idea of what it was about. And then, right. you know, there's whole scenes where... It's you know, they're rocks, <laughs> and it's and it's subtitles. And I was I was so intoxicated watching this movie that obviously was you know uh, a creative passion rather than as you said. But you know what's so sad about that? The lesson that a lot of studios, evidently, or I should say, apparently, because I don't know this for sure, but what I've heard is that a lot of studios saw that movie and its success, and the lesson they took away from it wasn't let people be original. The lesson was. People like multiverse stories. Oh, yeah, let's do more of those. Yeah, that's not the lesson, man. You know that. <laughs> and look, it's easy for me to say that. I don't run a big studio. Yeah. I've never made multi-million-dollar films. I've only worked on three or four TV shows. But that's just my opinion. That's how I feel, and that's okay. No, I I agree with you. Um, and uh, you know, it's uh, you know the new Star Wars series Andor, which is properly well written and got proper characters and that's what i've heard i haven't seen yeah. it yet but i have heard really really great things but you know it's the it's according to the 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 press you know it's the least kind of watched star wars thing and it's like well if if you keep giving people shit pies and then one day you give them a souffle it's too much it's too rich for their palate and uh, i think you're absolutely right yeah andor like one of the most riveting scenes in andor is one guy being berated by his mum while he drinks cereal uh, eats cereal with blue milk like <laughs> it's it's riveting and cuz we can identify with that yes yes cuz that's human yeah i totally get it and and certainly with star wars i think they reached a saturation point and that's when they realized okay i don't think we need to bring out a movie every year because people are just sick of it yeah you're ruining it. Now they're bringing out a series every year, but hopefully we're going to see more more in that direction. Broad range. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mate, I could uh, talk to you for ages. You have been an absolute uh, treat, and I would at some point love to have you back on the podcast to talk more ideas and more about where your career's going. But um, congratulations on you. the book. That sounds fascinating, and everything that you've talked about is uh, riveting. Uh, Boldly Go uh, by uh, you and William Shatner. You and William Shatner. What a what a <laughs> fantastic place to be um is there uh is it just bookstores in general or do you have a website that you'd like to direct people to it's available at, at or it will be uh on the 14th of december it comes out in all major bookstores and all online bookstores as well there's also an audio book that i think you should be able to get by then it's already out in the states you may not be able to get it here until the book is released but um bill does the audio recording himself and he reads it in his trademark shatnerian way and it's fantastic I prefer you buy the book because I think it's actually more interesting on the page. But for those of you who are busy or if you want both, then that's an option as well. Right. Uh, buy the book, read the book, and then uh, have the audio. So, you know, when you're going for a jog or you're going for a drive and you feel like listening to the mellifluous tones of William Shatner, you can go for it. So I think that's the way. 
Perfect. Mate, thank you so much for dropping by on the podcast and uh, all the best for the rest of the year. Thank you so much for having me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think Josh's book sounds like a brilliant read, so keep an eye out for it in all good bookstores. Another great and interesting read is a book written by my next guest. You're probably used to listening to us on TOEFOP, but today we're talking about his new book, I Am Not Fine. Thanks. Let's bring in Will Anderson. Hello, my name's Justin Hamilton. I am talking with Will Anderson about his new book, I Am Not Fine. Thanks. And I knew you weren't fine the moment I saw the title because it is not a pun. And uh, <laughs> was, was this a conscious decision to uh, move away from the pun titles uh, to show that this is something a little more serious in the, in the genre of books? They said um, we want a book title yeah. and, we, and we, don't want to be, we don't want it to be a pun um, if, if you're okay with that. And I said, I am not fine, thanks. And they said, we're like, great title. And I was like, no, <laughs> hang on, I meant with the fact that it wasn't a pun. That's what I meant. No, the interesting thing about it was, um, as you well know, normally when I write something, in fact, so I've just, to give people the context of this, uh, so I've just signed off on the artwork, mm. poster and name for my 2023 tour, Willuminate, an incredible new piece of art by James Fosdyke, who did the cover, of course, of I Am Not Fine Thanks, mm. and uh, does all my podcast art, and as you know, Justin. Um, but you have to sign off on that well before you've started to imagine what the show is. Right. And so part of the reason that my show titles have always had Will puns it's partly like, you know, because of a fun bit of, you know, branding and puns and it became a bit of a thing that, you know, people identify with me. But mostly it's just through the fact that I get asked what the title of my show is going to be well before I start thinking about what my show is going to be. And I didn't want to be one of those comedians who fell into the trap of calling my show something like, you know, 10 amazing things I learned from my dad and then you get to February and you're on stage at the Adelaide Fringe and you realise your dad only taught you seven amazing things and you've really got to <laughs> pat out the last 20 minutes by going, airplane food's pretty bad, isn't it, guys? Men and women are different. They are so different. Like cats and dogs, though. Has anyone ever brought up that cats and dogs are different, like men and women are? So uh, 
So basically, the the will pun thing has really just be, become a very convenient way of me being able. And sometimes they match. Mm. Obviously, when I did my show about being arrested, were legal was a pretty good name for that show, and and you know, were logical felt like a pretty good name for you know the show that I wrote in twenty twenty two, which was about the last couple of years. But often, the name, like the name, really has nothing to do with the show when I sit down to write the show and then sometimes after you see the show, you can then go, oh, yeah, that's why it's called that name. But the truth is that those two two things are often completely separate from each other. Right. I don't sit down with the name of the show and that that the name of the show is never my starting point for writing the show. It barely ever informs what the show is. It just is the name of the show and it sometimes matches yep. like what the show content is. But if it does, it is often – pretty much incidental like you know it's it, it's coincidental you know like it, it it was not on purpose in any way so it was very different with the book in that i handed them a manuscript and and the question was asked do you want to call it like a will pun that was like one of the the questions and i said no i don't think that i do yeah like i think that the book should be the will puns are for the stand-up shows. Yes. You know, I've written two previous books. Um, neither of them had will puns, Survival of the Dumbest and Friendly Fire. And I didn't think that this one should have a will pun, even though there is about – the book's about 70,000 words and about 7,000 of them are very similar to the words that appear in Will Logical. Yeah. Um, because the book is kind of about – you know, it's comedy going away. Like part of the book is about comedy going away and then that path, that long winding road back to getting back on stage to do Will Logical. So it tells the story of how Will Logical came to be but the story of Will Logical is also contained within the book, you know. Yeah. Um, and and then- so, sorry, I was just going to say that. So I handed them the manuscript and I said, I don't know, you tell me what you think it's called. And they came back pretty quickly, almost too quickly, and said, <laughs> we'd like to call it I Am Not Fine, thanks. Yeah. And I was like, oh, am I not fine? <laughs> <laughs> I was feeling pretty good until I got this email in size 36 great. I just handed in my fucking manuscript. I was wrapped. I really felt like I had a weight off my shoulders yeah. that had been on my shoulders for the last two years. Well, maybe the person who read it was writing back, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not fine, thanks. Is this yeah. a cry for help? Are you okay after reading this? Um, but the f- funny thing is that then I had to go back and, and reread the book several times for editing purposes but also for the audio book and I realised that even though I hadn't intended that to be the title, it is absolutely the theme of the book. You know, it is a book about... You know, every single chapter is imbued with this sense of why I am not fine, whether it might be about, you know, my world, my career, my personal circumstances, you know, whether it's billionaires going to space who could be fixing everything. Everything is kind of about me looking at the world and realising that when somebody says, how are you, that the most honest answer is to say, I am not fine, thanks. So it's a it's a tough title to live with because mm. it means that every single interview I've done press wise has started with somebody asking me how I am and thinking they're the first person who's come up with that clever question. Oh mate, you, the worst thing is is that they've probably workshopped it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Got a big laugh in the in got a big laugh yeah. in the TV production room, and they said this will be the first question. Yeah. I'll ask him how how he is, uh, but. 
but it's I think it's a good title. Like I'm I'm really happy with the title. I think it really sums up what the what the book is about. Uh, the image on the cover as well. You should never judge a book by its cover, but maybe you should with this one because the in image this case, is so I good. I would highly recommend you judge the book by its cover, and, you, and your judgment would be: this yeah. looks like an awesome book. Yeah, absolutely. The, Can uh, I tell you a quick little story about the cover? Oh, so of James Foz, James Fosdyke, who does all the original artwork for my um, podcast, you can find all his artwork at tofop.com, All these illustrations. Uh, that's what we're going to call the book when we eventually put it out. <laughs> that one will have a will pun. Yeah. Um, but he's done all my tour posters. He does all my art. But this was a speci- you know, a really, you know, great project. Like, and he put a lot of his, you know, time and effort into this. And we did an entire Fofop episode, which is one of my podcasts people can find and have a listen to James and I talking about all the work he put into it. But my favourite thing about it is that uh, – uh, the image on the front cover has little references to various themes that are in the book. So the more you look at the front cover, the more you can see all the various things that are popping out of my, you know, opened head yeah. are thing, things that are in the book. You know, this is the level of detail that James brings to these sort of things. They're not random images. They're all there in the book. But there is a snake that wraps around my yeah. head on the front cover and – at the very last moment, I was talking to uh, Malcolm Knox, who was editing the book, who's a brilliant editor and a great writer in his own right. And uh, we got to the last bit and he said, look, you know, it's almost done, but he said there's about 2% of the book that um, he said just, you know, he said, I think it would just benefit from losing 2%. And uh, I said, you yeah, know, what 2%? And he was like, I'm not really sure. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and uh, so the 2% that I lost was this, uh, the story that was about the snake. Right. Uh, which it turns out was not the bit Malcolm was suggesting. He quite liked that story and was a bit disappointed that I'd taken it out. But he was, he was right. I, I think that the book is better without I, – I reread through it and I was like, you know, this story is really consistent and I feel like this is the one story that doesn't really thematically fit into the rest of it, even though it's a funny story. Um, and I, I said to James, I said, look, um, I have taken out uh, the story about the snake. And he said, well, I'm not taking it out of the front cover. <laughs> he said "He said it's an analogy or a metaphor or something now, yeah. but I'm fucking leaving it in the art. I am not taking it out. Yeah, that's the part that's interactive for yeah. the reader. They can uh, decide what the snake uh, represents when they uh, get to the end of the story. That's uh, right. It's a choose-your-own-adventure, the snake. You can, you can tell me what you think the snake represents. You know, with uh, writing uh, stand-up and then writing a book, uh, one of the things that when you work on something at home, then you get to say it out loud and that's where you get the rhythm. Uh, how did you, uh, when you were rewriting this, did you read it out loud to get the rhythm of your own voice or how did your approach differ? So it's weird actually. So uh, most of the material in this book was conceived as stand-up. Some of it I've actually done as stand-up. Um, a lot of it was stuff that I only got to do a couple of times as stand-up because then the pandemic happened. Um so the book is all is about all that, but it is also the product of that, you know, in the way yeah. that you and I like to do things, um, you know, multi-layered and like I like projects to have more than one layer and I like to work on – so the book is – yeah, the book is a book in its own right, but it is also a book about stand-up going away and it's a book that is the stand-up that went away because, you know, so the book is about the thing, but it is also the thing. Yeah. Um, so – Almost everything in the book was conceived as 
as uh, as stand up. Um, there's one story at the start, the very first story, which is about a gig that I was doing in Adelaide, basically when the last gig I did before everything changed forever, and uh, um, that's the one bit that I'd never really even conceived as being stand up. Right. Like that, and that again wasn't that was the Malcolm who was such a great editor. He was the person who. Um, thought that that should be the first bit of the book that it was it was re- in fact i went ra- back and it was originally probably only about a thousand words and i think it's nearly three thousand words that opening story now because i went back because it was going to be the first story in the book i went back and substantially sort of rewrote it and reimagined it and so it's the only thing in there that really wasn't conceived as stand-up but as a story about a stand-up gig and i'd rewritten it and reimagined it so many times that I'd almost forgotten that it was like based on a true story. And right. then a great friend, a mutual friend of ours, the person who may have, I've, in the book I've kept it, everything, I've tried not to specifically identify people or places very much in the book and uh, because that's not the point of the book. Yeah. And, but the story that that story is about did happen in a specific place and, you know, with specific people on a specific day and the person who books that, uh, gig has currently been reading the book right? <laughs> and sent me a message and had photos of the incident I talked. So the opening story is about, uh, you know, like the, so there was a guy who the, the middle of this gig, uh, there's a, there's a, a, I won't tell the whole story, but there is a, 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 like the way that the gig was set up was there was a blank space down the middle of the you know an aisle where people would come in and there was a door down the front and a door down the back and firstly I was talking about you know I explained why as a comedian having an aisle down the middle is the worst because the place that you're trying to perform to has no people but yeah. also that in this room that like you know once the gig started come in the back right? yes because if you come in the front you go past the stage so I yeah. tell this story about this guy who comes in the front and and wackiness in shoes and I end up like patting him on his head, right? Like something that you would never do in like, you know, post-COVID time. So it's right. the time of the last time that you could do something like that. But I've like kind of rewritten that story so many times that I've almost forgotten that it was a real story. Right. And then the, this person that I'm talking about, our mutual friend who runs that gig, sent me two messages. One was, uh, hey, man, I'm going to think about rearranging the setup in that room for next time. <laughs> Wow, this is like a long passive-aggressive uh, right. suggestion on how you I could had, run your room better. I hadn't really imagined <laughs> that scenario when I was writing it. Yeah. Um, but I also didn't know that there was documentary evidence of the actual incident, right? Right. And you don't know how much of it you've exaggerated, and, but of course this person had literally had photos of that moment of me with my hand on top of this guy's head that he like sent me through. He goes, I'd never shared these with you, but thought you might find it funny that like, and he had like literally, I could, I'm like, oh my God, I thought that I kind of exaggerated, not, you know, not, I mean, not exaggerated in a way of like not telling it like it was true, but no, I just thought, added some jazz to it. Yeah. yeah. But it turns out I just kind of said what happened. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I said he was three rows from the back. He's like, maybe he was four in the photo. Right. But I really hadn't exaggerated it at all. Oh, wow. That's so funny. <laughs> 
It's uh, it's such a funny thing to think about uh, the idea of comedy being over or changing or or being mm. so tricky. Uh, I'm curious to know what you think it is. My theory is that as a society, we have given up the responsibility of context and uh, context for words, context for meaning, and you know, instead, it's all just become reactionary, which therefore makes things like satire and uh, the making of jokes uh, a, a tricky path to walk down sometimes i mean it's very interesting like when you write a book because you don't you don't have context yeah at all like i mean you know many of these jokes that i did on stage like i have the context of being in the room with those people and like knowing how they're reacting to them and being able to manage that but you don't have that at all when you write a book and i found it oh so you asked me about the idea of like did i say it out loud um Mm. i wrote it a lot of it to do a stand-up. So I write it in my on-stage voice. You know, I will repeat words, I will repeat things. Like there's a way that you write to – I don't write things out in long form. I write them as if that I would say them on stage, you know, yeah. get to the point as quickly as you possibly can. Often there's repetition and rhythm and like very much because you're – and then one of the things that like Malcolm had to do was like knock some of those – edges off he goes like the brain works in a different way when people are reading things to when they're hearing you say them so sometimes you don't need to repeat that or you need to say that in a different way and so he had to help me reimagine some of that without losing that sense of this is in my voice but then i had to do the audio book where i had to read it all out and that was incredibly difficult a because i've never listened to an audio book it's just not the way that i like to like I like to feel the book in my hand. I don't even read on like a Kindle or any of those sort yeah. of things. I I just like the the book, and I don't mind if people tear the pages or make notes in the margins or like. I think that's like I, I like that. That's what I've always loved about books. Like, sorry, you know, as a Virgo, I'm just going to vomit for a second, and then yeah. I'll be back with you. <laughs> yeah, I know you'd hate that, but <laughs> I like that. Yeah. If I see somebody and that you know it's it's tattered, it's red, it's stained with their coffee mug that they had on the other page, then that's. That's actually what I like about books, you know. So, um, but it was really interesting. So I had to, like, it took three days to record the audio book, to read the whole thing. It's about six hours in total. And uh, um, some of it felt really weird. And the bits that were the weirdest to read were the bits that I have done as stand up, but then we changed slightly in the way that they're set and structured so that they would be better to be read by people. But then I had to then say them out loud so it was like this is my joke but it still feels weird in my mouth because the way that it's written down is actually still different to the way that I would have said it if I was performing it on stage so now I'm this joke existed on stage yeah it existed in a slightly different way in print and now it's being said out loud as if it would be a thing that I was saying on stage but it's not the way that I would say it on stage so that was a I found that an incredibly like, yeah. interesting and challenging experience. You're physically trying to do something that goes against the memory of repetition. That's it's, hard. Yeah. And also I think it must be like, you know, when you hear about an athlete who has to learn how to run in a new way, like, mm. you know, to yeah. protect their hamstrings or something. They're getting yeah. a lot of one particular injury. So they have to actually reimagine their whole style of running. And you're like, well, I've never really thought about how I run. Yeah, Like my running style has just developed, my comedic style, my stage style, the way that I speak on stage has been almost developed naturally and instinctively over the years, whereas now it's 
very deliberate and you have to then deliver it in that deliberate way which is yeah it was very interesting you you know uh the author brian k vaughan has been quoted mm. as saying that uh he hates writing but he likes having written and uh you know you as a stand-up comedian in australia you have to keep coming up with new shows every year and uh I, do you relate to that or do you enjoy the actual process Oh no, I don't enjoy the process of all or at all. And this, the process of this book, I did not enjoy in any way. Like it was birthed in an incredibly difficult time in my life. And it's funny because I've had a few people read the book and you know sort of reach out and yeah, you know, go, oh man, this is like heavy. The funny thing is that most of the really heavy things, this this is a very palatable version. Like you know, often. Often, you know, the real heavy things that were happening in my life, there is some of that emotion or insight fed into the stories that are in the book. But the stories that are in the book are in no way, they're the most palatable and most shareable, you know, the, the parts of me that I'm willing to, you know, share with the world. Um, but they are, it's certainly not a documentary of the last couple of years of my life. You know, there are, it was written in a really hard time and, uh, I don't r- like writing at the best of times. I absolutely agree with that idea that it's nice to have written. Mm. Um, I don't find writing hard. I just don't enjoy it. Yeah, like, you yeah. know, like, like I, I you know, that I, sometimes I hear people go, "Oh, you know, I sit down and I won't leave my desk until I've written a thousand words." I can, I can write three thousand words in a day. That's mm. not the issue. I just don't like doing it. Yeah, and I like having done it. Yeah, and I like editing. Oh I yeah, I love editing. Editing's I, fun. I would, and I wish that if I, you know, and again, like, I mean, everyone's happy with the book, and I am the only person who thinks this. But you know, this is me, and I'm allowed to think this. I, I would have loved another edit. Now that it's out, I would have loved to go. Ah, oh, just one more. I yeah. just would have loved one more edit. Now that I really know what it is that I was trying to achieve. But that's just me. Like everybody yeah. else seems to be very happy with it. But And you know um, what would have happened if you got that edit? You would have wanted one more edit. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah. And that's part of the thing about why working on stage is so great. Yeah. Is because eventually you just have to do it. Yeah. Like you, you book the theatre. Yeah. Like because if... You sold the tickets. If I, if, if I waited until I thought the show was ready... I'd you would never, never have done a show. I'd never have done a show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, that is the, uh, I think that's the thing that's the yeah. most appealing about festivals is that they're yeah. there and you book them six months out and then you have to do it. And to be honest, I find that uh, the, the moment when you, like in the lead up, you can get out of it at any point. And yeah. so the day that it's about to happen, I find the most relaxing because it's like, oh, well, nothing I can do. I've done as much as I can. And yeah. uh, let's just get to it. So I love editing. Yeah, I love the editing. Once it's written and then I can start to move it all about and play with it and start to shape the story. And that's very much how I write. Like I I don't write with any deliberate plan at all, both in stand-up and in, um, you know, with this book because they're both written in very similar ways, to be mm. honest. Like um, is, you know, there's that old Michelangelo quote about the the, you know, the, statues already inside the piece of rock you just got to know which bits to get rid of and yeah. um the 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 difference is with stand-up you firstly have to construct the piece of rock yeah and that's mostly what i do 
I just empty out my head and I just don't know what if it's good and what if it's bad. I just am like, here's everything that's in here. I'll just get all that down on the page and then I just start to chip away the things that don't interest me and then often what you're left with ends up being either the show or in this case the book and um, then I, you know, start to edit and join it all together and make it make sense, you know, in, and um, yeah, so that was very much my process. I, I, like the, looking back on it, I think this book, the one thing I will say is it really did, there was plenty of times while I was doing it that I was like, what am I doing? Like, you know, if, if I, I don't want to be doing this, this is too hard. But now that it's done, I really would like to do it again. Right. Now that I've done it, I'm like, oh, I know how I could do it better next time. And the fact that people have liked it this time, you know, is really encouraging because I'm like, I could, this is, I can do better than this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Get that next edit going. The, uh, what did, did the, idea of it change over time like did you is the book what you thought it was going to be or did it uh, metamorphosize in ways that you weren't expecting i thought it was very much going to be only about the last couple of years and originally it was very chronological it started with comedy going away april 2020 which would have been 25 years in a row at the comedy festival felt like a really good place to start both, you know, with material, but also the fact that, like, that's a good story. That's like, and, you know, I knew that, you know, moving near Mullumbimby, the anti-vax capital of Australia at the start of a global pandemic would give me, <laughs> I wanted to talk about the pandemic. Yeah. And that gave me a good personal perspective where I could just tell a personal story that would have a broader context of being able to talk about, you know, science and not just my personal COVID experience, but like something that was more reflective of issues that everybody was dealing with and grappling with during that time. So I knew that those two things were going to be part of the story. And I knew that I wanted to talk about the things that were frustrating me in the world, you know, that idea of like, you know, so much of it was about like if this was the last opportunity I had to say something, which is a thought that we've had a lot, you know, as artists during this time, what is it that I would want to say? And I knew I wanted to talk about things like, climate change and my frustration with the fact that you know that we do have these people who have this inordinate amount of wealth who could actually do something about making the world a better place and uh instead not not doing that and that I wanted to be able to encapsulate that in some way and I knew as we got towards the end of it that maybe the story was going to be about me getting to go back to do stand up again that maybe mm. that's how it would finish but in the end, that isn't really how it does finish. The, funnily enough, the Lismore floods, so the you know Northern Rivers floods happened, which meant that I didn't get to the Melbourne Comedy Festival for an extra week. Um, you know, delayed that, that thing that I'd been sort of working towards. You know, for an extra week, I wasn't able to be there. And weirdly enough, obviously, climate change had been such a huge theme throughout the book that. You know, I mean, it was terrible for the Northern Rivers, but it really gave me a good end to the book. You know, <laughs> swings and roundabouts. <laughs> I mean, it was a perfect ending in some ways to the story that I'd been telling because it wrapped everything up because my story had been about both the positives and negatives of a community and I'd been able to – I'd been telling this story that in some ways was, you know, 
making fun of not the community itself but some of the ideas that were in the community. So then to be able to have a story at the end that was able to showcase the power of the community and how powerful that community was when they worked together to help each other was, I mean, thematically really rewarding to what the end of the sh- the the book was. And And again, this is an editing thing, like Malcolm was such a good editor because I had... The end of my stand-up show is a story about um, the the gig that I, I did a gig that was a year. So I went a year in between gigs, and I did a gig in Brisbane at the Brisbane Powerhouse for an anniversary. They had seven minutes, so I drove two and a half, three hours there for seven minutes on stage, and then had to drive back that night and nearly died on the way home in a storm. And that's the end of my stand-up show. Well, logical finishes mm. with that story, and it has a whole bunch of callbacks and. That's the that's the final bit of the show. And uh, Malcolm was the person who said, yeah, but that shouldn't be – that's what I thought the end of the book was going to be as well. And he was like, no, that, that's not the end of the book. That's – the end of the book is like, the you know, you trying to get back to the festival and the story of – because the my show wasn't so much about me trying to get back to the festival. Like yeah, the, the stand-up show isn't about that. I am there. Yeah. But um, the book is a little bit more about that. And so, again, that was him who, you know, really reshaped it in that way, which was – it was good. I like I liked working with another editor as well because I'm not I'm not precious about notes, you know. Like particularly if I think they're good notes and I thought he gave me really really great notes about, you know, structure and and how things should have been shaped and so yeah, I think I think it ends absolutely how it should have ended um which is cool. You know, notes are interesting because sometimes even when someone's suggesting something, that suggestion might not technically be correct, but it helps define what is correct. And, uh, you know, if you've got someone that you're on the same wavelength yeah. with, uh, it Well, can that be was really why rewarding. Malcolm was even right about that. You know, you've got to lose 2%. I don't know which 2%. Yeah. I didn't lose the 2% that he – like, I mean, the story I lost was a story he liked. Right. But I, I lost the right 2%. Yeah. Like – I know that now. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm absolutely confident that I lost the right thing, even though it wasn't the thing that he was suggesting. Yeah. So, you know, the book's called I Am Not Fine, Thanks, and uh, we are recording this at the end of 2022, officially the year known as What a Bummer. And mm. uh, what do you think is the best trait that you've had come out of all of this? Um, I I would say that a lot of my conversations on my Willosophy podcast, um, but also conversations I was having with my friends in 2019 in particular, 2018, 2019, were about how I thought I was doing the best work that I'd ever done, but I just, there was something about the feeling that I had on stage that, I just wasn't getting the feeling from it that I once got from it. And it all going away and that idea that now every time you go back on stage, you know, there really is that sense of I could, this could be the last show, this could be the last time that I get to say something to people because we've lived that reality now. Mm. We've lived that period of time where, you know, it might be months or years in between when you get to do it again. And unfortunately, Justin, you and I are now at an age where 
if we died, like, don't get me wrong, people would be sad and people might even say, ah, oh, that's a pity, like he was, he's too young. But they wouldn't launch a coronial inquest, right? They'd <laughs> 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 be like, yes. oh, well, that happens. Yep. Like, you know, we're now at an age where if we drop dead, people go, like, it would be sad and we hope that we would have many years in front of us. But it, it, it would just be one of those things that people go, oh, well, you know, they had a life. And, and so having that time to really think about that and think about what it is that I want to say and the way that I want to say it. You know, this book is, you know, it has its strengths and its, weak, and its weaknesses, um, but it is what I wanted to say. You know, it is like it is filled with things that I wanted to say in the way that I wanted to say them. And my stand-up show, like, was the best thing that I've – well, my favourite thing. People can choose what's the what best means, but – my favourite thing that I've ever done on stage because I think it's the first time ever that I've been entirely honest on stage, you know, like both in what sort of comedy I like and how I like to say things and, you know, my perspective on things was just really legitimate to what my perspective on the world is and all of that came out of all that time that I had to sit around and think about things during the pandemic. So that's the positive the positive is that, you know, in a work sense, it's it's just really re-engaged me in it. And then the other thing is I'd always said for years that I had a passion for younger comedians and I think that I had walked that walk. I think that mm. I'd tried to be supportive of of younger people but you and I both work on a television program on the ABC called Question Everything which is a show that I came up with during the pandemic and the reason I came up with that show was to provide an opportunity particularly for younger comedians to not only get on TV but to work behind the scenes and learn how to do something like that behind the scenes and you know in the last few months we've really walked that talk mm. and and I have had opportunities to see young comedians sit on that panel and get experience even just in the afternoons not on on TV or had conversations with, you know, emerging comedians about what they did well and what they could do better and and my genuine uh, passion for that. Like, you know, I've been pleased that, you know, it's easy to say that you have a passion for things like that mm. but what if you did it and then you found it really annoying or really <laughs> boring <laughs> yeah. or really draining, right? Yeah. But I haven't. I've found it the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. Like I've just loved the whole experience of getting to see these people, you know, at the start or in the middle, you know, emerging into their careers and getting to see what they want to do. So what about you? Let me ask you. I know we have to finish this up. We've probably done <laughs> enough for, for this podcast, but um, thank you for hosting it for me. But what about you? What do you, what do you think that you learned during that time or about yourself during that time? Uh, you know, so uh, what was interesting for me was uh, I kind of went through a bit of a depressed phase for a number of years and went into a little bit of, you know, without announcing it, uh, self-isolation. And then I was just coming out of it <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> when, uh, when isolation kicked in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to be honest, uh, I, I think there was uh, – I know that it was very challenging for a lot of people and there there was a 10-week period where I did not see anyone, that like nobody. 
And I look back on that time quite fondly because it uh, allowed me to kind of recalibrate a little bit and uh, let go of a lot of stuff that, you know, not even really important things, but just little things that niggle at you, uh, kind of uh, reminded me of why I got into this in the first place. And uh, I, I feel like probably for the first time in a long time, I quite like me. I'm not. That doesn't mean I'm perfect, and it doesn't mean uh, there's not things that I can improve. But it's like, oh yeah, no, this is this is all right. You you've done okay. You know, you're a, you're a, a, a decent person who, even when you make mistakes, you try your best to get back on top of those things, and. You'll be able to read about that in Justin's book. I am fine. Thanks. I am fine. <laughs> Tickety boo. I'm uh, great. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Don't know what this dickhead's on about. Yeah. I'm fantastic. Hey, you need to do another lot of uh, isolation. It feels good. But the uh, and one of those things was you know because I worked you know, like I worked with young people in uh, you know when I lived in Adelaide and uh, and stuff like that. Tried to kind of give them opportunities that I missed out on when I was coming through the scene uh, and. What I love is that the, the the main thing that I like is that I'm not scared of youth. Like, I like new ideas. Mm-hmm. I like being around young people. Same. I like them saying things to me that make me think, I've never thought of it that way. It doesn't mean you always agree, but you find ways in and you kind of understand things that are going on. And therefore, because I find that quite enjoyable and I find it quite inspiring – a lot of the things that people get angry about, I'm like, I don't know why you're getting angry about that. And I don't mean that from a self-righteous no. point of view. It's just, I just don't get angry at that stuff. I just kind of watch it. I accept it. And that's a very peaceful place to be. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not that person. And yeah. we've said this to each other a lot, but if I ever do become that person, please, you have my permission to hold a pillow over my head. No, until- I know. I am dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I get it. But I do. I think uh, I, I think uh, cynicism and being jaded are the enemies of creativity. And I, I think it's all right for young people to be cynical. I think they should be because that means they're questioning the foundations that our world is built around. But once you get to this point, there's no point in being cynical. Now you've got to build. Now you've got to help create. You've got to listen and you've got to try and open uh, passageways for people to uh, make proper change outwards and inwards. Uh, Thank you for doing this, Justin. I super appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. Um, Buy my book. I am not fine, thanks. That's the whole point of this. (laughs) 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 Buy my book. (laughs) Please, make him fine. Thank you to Josh and Will for joining me today. Make sure you check out their books and possibly even buy them as Christmas presents. A big shout out to Adam for being our Patreon supporter for the episode. Thanks once again, mate. And I hope you have a great end to the year. I'll be back next week with the final two podcasts for 2022. It's been a big year. And look, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh I I thought I'd be a lot more wiped out, but uh, that's an even bigger reason to actually have a bit of a break and, you know, recharge. I've got to, I've got to read. I've got to, I've got to listen to things. I've got to watch some things. I've got to feed the intellect. I've got to, you know, top up the fuel, the intellectual fuel. I've got to go out and do some more running, get some more exercise into me, you know? So, uh, 
yes, next week will be our last two episodes for the year. Uh, so next Monday will be our final Tudor Chatter episode with Bryden Coverdale. And then to get into the festive swing of things, author Sarah Bennett is going to talk me through what makes the perfect Christmas romance novel. It's a really fun chat to end the year. Let's finish today with a quote from the great man himself, William Shatner. I found this quote. It made me laugh. I thought, I'm putting it on. William Shatner said, How do I stay so healthy and boyishly handsome? It's simple. I drink the blood of young runaways. William Shatner. What a legend. Until then. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.